We're going to be in 1 John tonight, and we're going to be looking specifically at fellowship. These one and other passages that we've been looking at have come in the form of a command or instruction or encouragement of what we're supposed to do. Uh, We are supposed to be forgiving with one another. We're told that that's what we're supposed to do, uh, that we are to use kind words with one another. We're told, you need to do this. When we get to fellowship, we don't see a command that says, you are to fellowship with one another. Actually, what we're told is much more convicting than just being told that. We're told that if you are in Christ, you are part of a fellowship, and a natural result of being in Christ is that you are fellowshipping. Where instead of being told what to do, we are told what we are and what becomes as a result of knowing Christ. And we see this in verse 7. But, this is 1 John chapter 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So, We are not told. You guys need to have fellowship with one another. We're told that if we are walking in the light, that's what we already have. It's something that's been given to us through Christ. Now, to see the context of it, really, chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, you'll see that they go together. So, really, all of chapter 1 is the context of verse 7. But we're going to start at verse 5 and work our way through to get to verse 7. And we'll be backtracking in chapter 1 and other chapters as we look at it. John's whole letter is really cyclical. It repeats the same themes over and over again. It's notoriously hard to outline a specific direction of John because he's continually repeating the same things. But he begins in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so what we see here is a general statement of God. A general statement that is describing God and actually also describing in this section, we will see that of salvation. And so it says that God is light. Now you see in other places in Scripture that God is robed in light, uh, that we have seen His glory, which refers to some sort of illumination. But this idea here that God is light is very specific to 1 John. And so the question is, is what does that light mean? Well, we'll look at some other passages that show us what it means, but Overall, just to give us a a, a brief description, light is equated with life. And to so say that God is light is to say that God is life. So he is light, which refers to life. Darkness then refers to what? Death. And so that's the imagery that's being used here. But because we're using those those descriptions of light and darkness, it doesn't only mean life and death. It's referring to a certain type of life, a certain type of death. 
And so there's this ethical dimension to it. That is, God is light, that is, He is pure. And so it's more than just life, but is also referring to an ethical side. That is, that God is holy. And so God as light has no darkness. As soon as darkness enters the picture, it's no longer can be said that He is light, but that He would actually be a mixture of something else. So it's that He is purely undefiled light, undefiled life. And darkness then would be to, referring to death, would also be referring to the opposite of that which is God. As God is set apart, God is holy, God is undefiled. Darkness would be, to we would see, is this sinful world. Remember what Jesus says of the sinful world. It loves darkness. It does not like the light. And we see there those two things are talking about an ethical thing there when Jesus refers that in John chapter 3. Now, after we have this general statement of God, you'll find a series of if statements. Now, if is a conditional sentence. And it's this. It is if we say we have fellowship is the first if. The second if, you'll see it in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, and then you go on a little bit later, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. So notice what he's doing. If we say we have fellowship, then he goes, if we say we have no sin, and then later on, if we say we have not sinned, he's given us this conditional statement that's going to be followed by a logical conclusion in that. And so this first, I just want us to see that pattern that John makes there of those conditional statements. And this first one is the one we want to really deal with. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So notice what it says. It's incompatible to say that I have fellowship with God and yet I reside in darkness at the same time. They don't work together. They are mutually exclusive. And he says it very poignantly where he says, if we say this, that we have fellowship with God but are walking in darkness, we're what? We're liars. We're liars. And he says that we're not practicing truth if this is what we would say. Now, when it speaks of walking in darkness, as you look at the letter of 1 John, John is writing his letter to the church, combating specifically the Gnostic heresy, that Christ did not appear in flesh. And so he's combating that. And so as we understand the overarching theme that John is writing about, that idea of walking in darkness would have to, in some degree, be a denial of God in the flesh. Look at verses 1 through 2. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You cannot look with 
eyes and touch with hands and hear a some sort of phantom spirit type of thing is his whole point. But we actually touched Christ. He says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he shows the deity of Christ that he always was, that the Son of God always was, he is eternal, but that he takes on flesh. And John says, I actually touched him and so did the others, the other disciples actually touched him. So if we begin with this basic premise of walking in the darkness, is this, to start off with, would be to walk in a a life that denies that God was robed in flesh. It would be to deny the Savior. Now, we have to start there. If one lives in that they do not have the light of Christ, and so they are thus walking in what? In darkness. So the idea that we're going to get to with fellowship, and this idea of light and darkness, the whole idea of resting in light, or life, or in darkness, and in death, all is based upon a common confession of who Christ is. That He is God incarnate. And so, walking in darkness is then incompatible with saying we have fellowship with God. And why is that? Well, what did we read in verse 5? God is light, and in Him is no darkness. If there was a mixture of darkness, it would be something else other than light. It is incompatible with walking with God. If we form our life on that denial of who Christ is, we do not then follow not only Christ as our Savior, but Christ as our Lord. You see this, by the way, this idea of contrast between two ways throughout Scripture. You're familiar with this passage, 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership, and that there it is, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. His whole, and Paul's entire point is, in those, is there, there is No partnership between righteousness and unrighteousness. There is no partnership between light and darkness. He goes on to say, after saying that the church is the temple of the living God, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people there. For go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Why? Because light and darkness are not compatible. They don't have fellowship with one another. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughter to me, says the Lord Almighty. He says in verse 7, 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Why? Because if we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we are a liar and not practicing the truth because they're not compatible. There is no fellowship between those two things. You think of Elijah telling the people, how long will you go about limping between two decisions? Choose God or choose Baal. But you can't be in both. Now, what does Christ himself claim? He says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see in chapter 1 of John, in him was life, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So how can we say this, or how can God give us this in his word, that if we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we are a liar, not practicing the truth. Because Jesus tells us something that's accomplished. Jesus tells us something that will happen in following him. He doesn't say this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but they might have the light of life, and they might not walk in the darkness. But he says they will not walk in the darkness, and they will have the light of life. They don't, they, they, they've been pulled from it. Christ has conquered the darkness. And so the idea of coming to Christ, but yet remaining in the darkness, they are not cohesive. And what John teaches us here is something that is accomplished in Christ. And so walking in the light, we see it's not a command as much as it is a reality resulting from God's grace. It's what happens to those that are in Christ. Now, you're not hearing me say that we're not to strive for those things. We absolutely are. But the way the text shows us is what Christ has accomplished. And because of what Christ has accomplished, He has accomplished it for those who are in union with Him. Now, this moves into... We see this. I want you to say how this is worded. If we say we have fellowship with him, we have. That's the, that's the claim that I know God. And I know God as he has revealed himself in his son. I know the gospel. While, you see, have is what's present, and while is what's present, it's these, this idea of having these two paths going simultaneously, and that I could have a foot in one path, and that other path, he says, that is not possible. Now, how many of us have reached perfection? We do not believe in perfectionism. We're not Wesleyans. We believe that we actually still sin. 
In fact, we know it because it's ever-present with us. In fact, John addresses this. If we say we have no sin, what? We, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We recognize that we sin. He also warns us in chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Why is he telling us that? Well, because that's our struggle because we live here in this world. We live in it constantly. And so we recognize in one sense that we have to deal with darkness because we have not yet been perfected. But what we see then is this idea that is throughout Scripture is that through regeneration, there is a change in the person that comes from God that is not something that we did. But as a result of regeneration, there's a new disposition in the person. What is the course of their life? You think of the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, it says, And he told them many things. A sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came up and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the, rose, the sun arose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. That would be the one that hears the message. And they maybe, let's say, okay, I like that. And there's some immediate fruit from it. And then it does not persevere. And it goes away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them up. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. That's that picture of this persevering faith. But it's not, as we understand, our faithfulness is highly flawed. But because he who began a good work in you, it's God who begins that good work in you. It's also God who sees it to the finish that we persevere. So he says this, we lie and do not practice the truth. What does it mean to to practice the truth? If you look at 2 John, we see this exposition of Christ being truth. In the first six verses, you see it really clearly. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who, all who know the truth. What's that word? Know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now notice what he goes on to say. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, and dear lady is the church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have from had from the beginning, that we love one another, 
And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This idea of not practicing truth would be to live a life counter to the revealed Word of God. When we are walking in truth, when we are practicing truth, we are living and abiding in Christ, and that is demonstrated through our following and abiding in His Word. Now, I want to just for a second think about this also, this connection that we've already seen of walking in darkness and a denial of who Christ is. If you see this idea, this connection, I think it's helpful, and you see it in chapter 5. In verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, so, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you have been born of God. Remember, regeneration precedes our faith. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This is getting into our idea of fellowship. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Notice the connection in believing in Jesus and that idea of practicing truth, of walking in light according to God's revealed will, according to His commandments. That is the result of being born of God. So John opens this letter and says that if we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, you can understand why he uses such strong language because we have seen what it is that God has done for us in transforming us in salvation. He's changed us completely. This is not sanctification resulting from our own ability. In fact, you see that so clearly in verse 10 of chapter 5, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So how do we understand that? Our righteous living, our walking in light, our walking and practicing truth is a result of our union with Christ and Christ's righteousness flowing through us. And you see here, the contrast that's given in verse 7. This idea that we could walk in darkness and say we have fellowship with Him. They're incompatible. But notice what he says. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have. 
It's a present active indicative. It's something that is right now. It's rather surprising, though, and I know that we've looked at this passage at various times, and I say the same thing every single time, so I hope you don't tire of hearing it because I don't tire of saying it. It's rather surprising when you get to all this idea of fellowship with God, and we see if we say, but if we are walking in the light, then we have fellowship, we're thinking, with God. But that's not what John writes. John says our fellowship is with one another. Hence the one another passage. It's a rather surprising statement. All this focus of, of, of what God has done for us and that we are in fellowship with Him and walking in light means that we're walking in fellowship with Him. It's all true. But it manifests itself in a particular type of fellowship and it is fellowship between fellow believers. It's what we have in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, it necessarily results in fellowship with other believers. By the way, this is the very purpose for which John wrote this letter. Look at verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, that's a purpose clause. So that for this purpose, you too may have fellowship with us. Then he goes on to say, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that, another purpose statement, our joy may be complete. But what do we see here? Is this fellowship at first is centered around a common profession of who Christ is. It's centered around a common truth, a common understanding of redemption. Fellowship, then, is centered around Christ. That is what defines and must define our fellowship. Now, why does this necessitate fellowship? Okay, so he begins by saying this, if we walk in the light... We have to stop and ask this question. If God is light and we look into our heart and we know that we are sinful, how on earth could we ever have fellowship with a holy God? I think Isaiah was a far better faithful man than I could ever think of being. And when he's in God's presence, he calls down a curse upon himself. How on earth could we have fellowship with God? Well, look what he tells us. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, this fellowship has been established by the blood of Christ. And if you are in Christ, it is by the same means that we have fellowship with God. And that same means by which brought us into fellowship with God necessarily then brings us into fellowship with one another. We stand differently than those that have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so the necessary result of being in Christ is that we have this fellowship we share in something that is common that brings us together 
And it's not us that did it. It's God who did it. It's what God has accomplished. Why we have fellowship with one another. Now, our fellowship we see throughout Scripture. Notice how it's stated. I'm going to just read a few passages. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. We see that in verse 3. You too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians that we have fellowship with the Son. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are told there that we have fellowship with Jesus. And then we're told in Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 1, any participation or any fellowship in the Spirit? The answer is yes, we do have those things. And then there's something else about this fellowship that we have with God is it's actually visibly seen in communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And when you go to chapter 11, you see that communion is done when we come together in fellowship with one another. And we are demonstrating visibly our fellowship with God in that. And so it is actually then incompatible to claim fellowship with God and yet have no fellowship with other believers. Look what John writes in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. What does that mean? They would have remained in fellowship with us. They would have persevered with us. And so our expression of fellowship with God is intimately tied together with our fellowship with one another. That's an amazing thing. But you see how closely they're intertwined here. Is that our fellowship with God is shown and manifested in our fellowship really in how we treat one another. Remember when Paul is, persec- or Paul is converted, Christ asks him, why are you persecuting me? Paul was persecuting the church. And so a couple things I want to just say is, a non-fellowshipping Christian is a contradiction in terms. And you have to think of it like this. When God created Adam, everything was very good. But then he says, for the first time, something was not good. And what was it that was not good? Adam lacked what? Fellowship. Didn't have a partner. We're actually created for fellowship. What happened to fellowship, though? Well, fellowship, immediately, upon sin entering into the world, was disrupted. Adam and Eve all of a sudden had problems with one another. Adam had problems with his kids. They were killing one another. All of a sudden you see human institutions propping up and warring tribes fighting one another. That fellowship that was perfectly in the garden now is destroyed and you have people fighting, killing one another. 
but yet we were created for fellowship. So this idea of fellowship then can only be truly restored in Christ. Just like we would say a marriage can only be truly restored in Christ. We were created for fellowship. And this idea of a non-fellowshipping Christian is, is contradictory. So think about this in our modern time. Online church. And I know of people that never will step foot in a church, but they support a church online that they go to. No multiple people. That, that's a contradiction in terms. Now, I'm not judging their eternal salvation. I'm just saying... That's not compatible with God's Word. That's not compatible with being a Christian. You think of this idea, oh, I'll just worship on my own. Well, we're actually brought into fellowship with people to worship together. Think of this, I, I love Jesus, but I just want nothing to do with Jesus' people. You might feel like that sometimes, by the way, but... That's not a disposition of the Christian. How about I, I can't connect with them, so I disconnect. It's contradictory, isn't it? And here's why it's contradictory. Because we're not the ones that made the connection. Christ by His blood made the connection. Who are we then to come and disrupt that? So what is fellowship? Well, just to define fellowship... On just a plain definition, it would be sharing, it would be participation, it would be communion with one another, it would be a partnership with one another. But what are the characteristics of that? What does that look like in a practical sense? Well, I think we've already seen it's centered in Christ. It's a joint confession. We come together with a, with a joint understanding of something. We understand and believe the same things concerning the gospel. And if that's what fellowship is, it means that Christian fellowship is markedly different than other friendships that we might have in the world. It means there's a connection there that's different than connections that we have, say, in the workplace with our non-Christian friends. It's, it's vastly different. We also know that in our idea of what it means to fellowship, is that because it's vastly different, we have a different worldview. We have a different look at life. We view the life, th life through eternity rather than what's taking place just now around us. And we come together with that same outlook on life. That God created the heavens and the earth. Man sinned. And the earth is in sinfulness right now. But that Christ came offered redemption, and that in Him we are restored, and we're waiting for the, the culmination of Christ's return, and we're moving towards that, and God is sovereign, and Christ is on the throne. We gather in our fellowship with those basic things that we understand, that God is sovereign, Christ is in control. That's going to look different than our friendship with uh, our non-Christian friends. So it's centered in truth. It's centered in all that God has revealed in Christ. And Jesus has taught us how to live. Therefore, what characterizes Christian fellowship then, to see what characterizes it from a, it can't look like this sense, is that there must be an absence of sinful actions. 
When we look at Christian fellowship, we have to see the absence of sinful actions. Meaning, when we come together, our understanding of truth means we live according to it. Walking in darkness means we are not walking in fellowship with God. And so if we are walking in darkness with one another, we're not having true fellowship. Our fellowship is walking in the light. Let me just ask you this to reflect on it, and I know we're running out of time, but what are some ways that we have, we have seen or know that, that Christians can abuse this idea? How about embracing sin? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in their fellowship. Well, they're, they're, they're abusing that idea of fellowship. You look over, you could just stay in all of the, both Corinthians letters and, and answer this question. But verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? This idea of fighting. He goes in chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a fellowship, when you're supposed to be fellowshipping with one another, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you. You go in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, in verse 20. It says, For I fear that perhaps when I come... I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In other words, we're abusing fellowship if any of those things are present in us. If we are selfish, as Paul talks about fellowship in Philippians chapter 2, and James Chapter 2, if we are showing partiality towards one another. And so if sinfulness characterizes our fellowship, then we actually embrace that which made it necessary for Christ to die and cleanse us from sin in the first place. So in the negative sense, those things can destroy what a true fellowship looks like. Well, what should it look like in a positive sense? We know what it should not look like. Well, here's what it can look like. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So we would just start with this, that idea of devotion. It takes a commitment. It actually takes work. It takes sacrifice. But what we've already seen is that we were created for it that we are whole in that, that we are, it's a reality of being in Christ, but we also see that we have to be devoted to being part of one another's life. You see this idea that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it's also to that fellowship, that participation in one another's lives, but also what characterized their fellowship was apostolic teaching. And apostolic teaching would come with not only understanding who God is, but what God commands of us. And so fellowship centered around apostolic teaching, we have to see it is this way. It is actually a means of grace in our life. And here's how this works. In fellowship, why it's a means of grace in our life is that as we've seen in other one another passages, 
we spur one another on. We, as we come together, centered in a common profession of who Christ is, as we come together that in, in a way that has been established by Christ, we are to be iron sharpens iron. And I can tell you that me being with you sharpens me in conversation, in theology, in my understanding of Scripture. And so I actually, it is a means of God's grace for me to be able to be in fellowship with you in my own life. And I would hope that as you look around, you would say, yes, I have grown in my faith as a result of that, and I could not have done it apart from that fellowship. That's what must characterize this fellowship, is that we are growing together. We are challenging one another in how we live out a Christian worldview. Paul says that idea of fellowship and partnership is a joint adventure in the gospel. That is sharing the gospel message. That we are joined together in righteousness in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. That this idea of fellowshipping must be defined by all those one another passages that we've looked at. So is fellowship vital for the Christian life? Absolutely. And what makes it possible is fellowship with the triune God by His Spirit. So the natural outflow of communion with God is communion with one another. And without communion with God, fellowship will be unnatural and eventually non-existent. And the beauty of this, though, is that the more we are plugged in, the more we grow in this, and the less that we're plugged into it, actually the more difficult it will be in our sanctification process. So does God desire us to devote ourselves to fellowship? Is it vital for your health as a person created in God's image? Absolutely and that fellowship is not something we made. It's something God did. We are living in the consequence or the result of what God has done. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the joy of this particular fellowship and that it is you who brought it together. We thank you that we may have fellowship with you because we have been cleansed from our sins. We praise you for forgiveness of sins, and that we may stand before you in your sight righteous, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And how our union with Christ, the righteous one, flows through our life into righteousness as well. We pray that by your grace we would always be seeking to devote ourselves to this fellowship, fellowship with one another, that we would be sharpening one another, we would be exhorting one another, encouraging one another. We pray that, Father, your blessings would be upon this fellowship to that end. As we depart from here, we pray that we would not only reflect upon these things, but our hearts would be, be prepared for gathering and worship this coming Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.